listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan. Fair warning, Wade, I am going to be channeling my nonstop interior spiritual monologue for the entirety of this episode. You know, Kevin, I plan to write down some of the things you say today and hang them just below my live, laugh, love wall decor. It does my heart good to know that my words will be immortalized in picturesque cursive writing on the walls of your home, Wade. Picturesque cursive writing or just papyrus. Listeners, we've got a great show planned for you today. First up is our review of Terrence Malick's newest drama, A Hidden Life. We're also going to be probing the depths of divorce with our review of Noah Baumbach's latest hit for Netflix. That would be the Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson vehicle, Marriage Story. It's a couple of Oscar hopefuls today on this episode, episode 229 of Seeing and Believing. Remember the day when we first met? You were shy like now. I remember that motorcycle, my best dress. You looked at me and I knew. We're here on episode 229 of Seeing and Believing, one of the last episodes, Wade, that we're going to be doing this year, and we're definitely going to be wrapping things up with a bang with this week's episode. That clip you just heard was from the new Terrence Malick film, A Hidden Life, and as any longtime listener of Seeing and Believing can tell you, that means that it's a movie that we've been looking forward to reviewing on this show for a really long time, Wade. Yes, no, you're definitely right, Kevin. This was my number one most anticipated film of the of the fall winter season. And so it's yeah, it's it's always surreal when you anticipate a movie for a very long time and then you just you're there and you're sitting in front of the screen and you're you're like, okay, like this is it. I've been hearing about this movie for a couple years. And I finally get to watch it. And there's a lot of expectations that go along with that. But it's, yeah, it's 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 a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a experience that probably most people are familiar with. And we're going to be reviewing next week one of those films that is probably going to give that experience to a lot of people, which is, of course, <laughs> Star Wars 9, The Rise of Skywalker. So stay tuned for that next week. But I guess you could say that maybe a new Malick film is maybe a little bit like a new star Wars for, for you and me, Wade. Yeah. It's yeah. It's like a, it's like a, if you're a Christian and you're a cinephile, it's like Christmas day. It is like, it's like the star Wars. At least that's, you know, my opinion, I guess. Yeah. Well, you know, that that's interesting to talk about because while a new Malick film is an event for any cinephile, Malick's case in particular is an interesting one for me, I guess, because the last couple of films that he has directed that have been set in the modern day have maybe not been my favorite. I've been of the opinion that they have been less successful than the heights of his career have led us to believe that he's capable of. So anything can happen, Wade. This could either be a great Christmas present or the most disappointing Christmas morning (laughs) that that I have ever had. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I'll say this too. 
Terrence Malick's next film is called, as of now, The Last Planet. It's in post-production. And apparently, it's a retelling of Jesus' life. So I feel like we have a couple of these movies in a row where it's, you know, we very much anticipate them and are just really hoping that they pay off in the end. Because I'm really hoping that, you know, that next film pays off in the end. Yeah, for sure. Well, we will leave that to the gods of fate to decide in 2020 or whenever that film comes out. But let's turn our attention to A Hidden Life in more detail. This new film is... Terrence Malick's telling of the story of an unsung hero, Franz Jägerstatter, who refused to fight for the Nazis in World War II. When the Austrian peasant farmer is faced with the threat of execution for treason for refusing to swear an oath of loyalty to Adolf Hitler, it is his unwavering faith and his love for his wife, Fanny, and his children that keeps his spirit alive through imprisonment, beatings, and other forms of suffering. Wade, as we've been discussing, this is a film that some people might say is a return to a sort of comfort zone for Malick. He's returning to a historical period piece, and he's maybe returning a little bit more towards the bucolic uh, story of people communing with nature, uh, living off the land, and so forth with his story of Austrian farmers. We've discussed already how I was a little bit let down by his two previous films, Night of Cups and Song to Song. You were a little bit more bullish on those two films than I was. My question for you is, where does A Hidden Life fall in this latter period of his career? Would you say it's a return to form, the continuation of a great run of films, or maybe something in between? That's a, I mean, that's a good question, because it kind of gauges where you're at with Malick and provides some, some backstory on this movie. So I I was disappointed by song to song. Some fascinating ideas. It just it did not work for me. I like Night of Cups. I've seen it three times now, I think, or four times. And I think it just it grows with every watch. And I know that you just the idea of watching it three or four times for you is, is probably just, you know, it doesn't sound very fun. But I, I really like that. Um I I like a hidden life and I I think it's probably and I I I need to watch it again because it, it is tough to kind of put all these movies together and and compare them. I think it might be his best film since uh since uh, Tree of Life. I I really do. I think it's I think it's a good film. I don't think it reaches the heights of Tree of Life, but I I think that putting himself back into a historical narrative Getting him away from the city, we saw in Song to Song and Night of Cups, allows him to operate, I think, in his sweet spot. And then also giving him more of a linear script. Now, it's not completely linear, but we do get a fairly straightforward story. So for many people, this might be his most accessible movie since something like The New World or The Thin Red Line. Now, that's not, like I said, I, it's it's not as good as, as Tree of Life, but it is pretty accessible. And so I think there are going to be some people who are not huge fans of Malick's who will actually enjoy this movie. Uh, I don't know. That's kind of what I think. Uh, what are your thoughts, Kevin? I'm really interested to know what your thoughts are because we have not talked about this movie at all, which kind of makes this uh, a little bit more fun. 
Yeah, it was. I was purposely being vague on Letterboxd. I logged it, but I didn't give it a rating. I didn't write yeah, about it at all. Purposely, <laughs> because I knew that it would be kind of fun to to keep you on the edge of your seat to see whether this would kind of repeat my reaction to his previous two films, which, as I said, I wasn't a huge fan of, and I was just really hoping that my heart wouldn't get broken a third time. And I'm really glad to say that for me, at least, this film is a return to form. I mean, I know that's kind of a cliche, a, a critical cliche to employ sort of like say, oh, this director made a couple of movies I didn't like, and now I made a movie I did like, and so that's a return to form. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I did. I hesitate when I, to, to use that phrase, I guess, but for me, at least, I do see this film as him returning to a perhaps a story or a mode maybe that is much more in his wheelhouse and it shows like there's a there's a comfort to this film and a um a depth to it that i personally didn't find in night of cups or song to song and i was really glad to rediscover it here and i think that i i would say that this is probably his best film since to the Wonder. I, I like To the Wonder quite a bit. I wouldn't say that this is uh, ex- exceeding that in terms of how much I like it, but it is very good. And a lot of it comes down to Malik really kind of returning to a sort of specificity that I guess I found lacking in his previous two films, which were ethereal in a way that was not intriguing and just felt kind of insubstantial to me. This is a very substantial film, and I think a lot of that may have to do with what you brought up, Wade, the fact that this is a more traditional story in terms of it has a a, a linear plot that we follow. Um, the the characters are less of types and, and more like actually explored in a little bit more depth. And the fact that we're in a very well-known time period that carries a lot of thematic um, associations and richness with it, just the the era of World War II and the Nazis and all of the associations that come with that do a lot to help carry this film up to a place where Malick has a lot to work with in uh, presenting his usual spiritual explorations. So I, I liked this film quite a bit. Yeah, I am breathing a huge sigh of relief, Kevin. I was I was a little <laughs> worried. I was like, well, is this is this one of those days where you just gear up for a fight? Like what, you know, what do I do? Um no, it's it, I, I think I think you said it well. With with Knight of Cups and with Song to Song and and in some ways with To the Wonder, we get characters as as more metaphors, uh, especially with Knight of Cups and Song to Song. You've got Christian Bale's character in Knight of Cups, and he is kind of this stand-in for a pilgrim, and almost, you know, the pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress. You could you could say that he's he's kind of a modern-day version of this individual. And I think it works very well for Knight of Cups. I don't think it works for Song to Song. There's so many symbols. There's so many ideas. It's more of a philosophical uh, statement. I I. I think it wants to be a poetic statement, and it just it doesn't land there for me. Here, these characters, I mean, you could you could look at them and say, okay, they are metaphors for this period in time, but they are actually just individuals, and they are just characters, and they are characters going on this this journey together. And 
I think there are going to be some people who are surprised at the marriage here in this film. I, I think that's really kind of the heart of this story. These two characters and their love for one another, the husband and the wife, which is very different from the marriages that we've seen from Malick's recent films. And I'm trying to think maybe from any other movie that he's done. I, I, yeah, any other movie. Just the the healthy marriage and the relationship and the love that they they have for each other. And we'll get into the religious aspects of this film as well as the political aspects of this movie. But I, he doesn't ever wonder, Malik doesn't ever wonder from this central relationship and the love they have for each other and the care they have for each other. And I think that w- that's what binds this movie together. And we're going to you know, talk about marriage story next, and we're going to talk about a marriage falling apart. Uh, this one actually kind of almost growing closer as they're separated by time, by space, and even um, what comes after that. So yeah, I... I, I think he really nails that aspect of the film, and it helps me to really connect to who these people are, and um, and it puts some flesh on them, and I, I, I like that. Yeah, you know, the central relationship, I agree, does so much to ground the the ever-widening spiritual uh, s- spiral, I guess, that Malick tends to trace in all of his films, where we've kind of followed the, these swooping camera shots that are accompanied by these very ethereal voiceover tangent, or I don't want to say tangents, but um, voiceover explorations or inter- self-interrogations, I guess. It seems like there's a lot of maybe Augustine in the way Malick conceives of uh, his characters in his films in that there's a lot of self-interrogation. There's a lot of just s- addressing um, a an unseen presence. You, usually you, you and I would say God in his films. And from that... There's all sorts of spiritual themes that Malik mines and allows the audience to contemplate along with his characters. And I think he's at his best when he does find a way to ground those spiritual investigations in something solid. And the relationship between Franz and Fanny in this film is that anchor that really does so much to ground it. And it does so much also to keep Franz kind of from floating off into the ether as sort of this saint who is untouchable by the um, the evils of the world. We really spend a lot of time with Fanny, who, after Franz is, is arrested for refusing to swear the loyalty oath, she's the one who has to contend with being ostracized by the, the people in their small village, who has to raise three small children all on her own, who deals with hostility from Franz's mother. There's all this stuff that she has to essentially go on her own difficult journey through those difficulties while he's doing his own uh, sort of undergoing his sufferings in prison. And I think that's key for really making this film feel not just like a hagiography of one very spiritual person who is 
who doesn't seem human to us, and turning it into a story of two people who are taking very difficult spiritual paths that are almost parallel to each other, but their connection is what keeps them feeling human rather than like saints that are are barely touchable by doubt, I guess. Yeah, and, and she is a great character. She, in, in some ways, she argues with whether the choices he makes are profitable. And so there is doubt in her heart. But at the same time, she bears the burden of those choices. And you mentioned just the community that she's in and what she has to go through while her husband is in prison. She is in a prison uh, herself. I also appreciate, too, how the movie makes a connection between her character and the way that she's helped her husband grow into this world. And at one point, they mentioned to her, he changed when he met you. And it's as if she has become this sort of object of God's grace in his life. And because of her presence and because of her commitment, he has received the fortitude to make this decision. And so it's almost this joint sacrifice. It's almost as if they, if anybody's a saint in this film, both of them are saints. They are connected to this, this same the, the same decision, the same choice. And I, I really appreciate that because it helps us to understand that when godly people stand up or when anyone really stands up and makes a courageous choice, they have to have people around them who will bear those burdens too and that no one person is alone. And if we're thinking too of the, the theme of this movie – and the idea that a number of characters tell him, hey, you're not going to make any difference. No one's going to know your story. It's isolation. They want him to feel alone. But the people around him know that story. The people around him are sharing in that story. I think, too, as we're, we're, we're talking about the movie, this is set uh, in Austria. And... It allows Malik to get away from the the cities of his last two films, uh, L.A. and then Austin, and really just explore what looks like heaven on earth. It it's the, the scenery and the cinematography. It, it's just amazing here. At the same time, Malik, while he appreciates this sort of um, rule down-to-earth agrarian setting, he also has understood throughout his filmography that there is darkness here too. And so the city is is really kind of, for, for Malik, a magnification of darkness and evil in the world. And so we get uh, Christian Bale in Knight of Cups, we get Ryan Gosling's character in Song to Song, and what happens at the end of that movie? He gets away from the city. He begins to work with his hands, and there seems to be this hope there. And so we get that here, that there is this, this joy that comes in being close to God's creation. Uh, at the same time, we see that there, there are seeds of evil there too. So the townspeople, uh, they turn against them at some points. Uh, we get... Uh, this sort of uh, this darkness that's creeping into what should be what should be 
heaven on earth and what looks like heaven on earth. So some of those ideas and some of those themes of what we have to contend with and darkness coming into creation and, and really fighting that, uh, it's all kind of here. It's just presented a little bit differently than we've seen Malik do uh, do that you know, for a couple of movies because it's primarily set in this countryside. Malik does something really interesting with the opening of of this film. So every other Malik film usually begins with this this sort of bucolic like he sets the scene in in this bucolic unspoiled um usually like you said agrarian setting or at least there's there's a sense that we we begin in a paradise and then as complications are introduced in the narratives of his films that paradise is either complicated or spoiled or somebody has to leave it somehow that's something that we see over and over in all of his films even in the thin red line a war film it begins with kind of this um, very idealized vision of the the native peoples uh, in on these Pacific islands, sort of just going about their everyday lives, and that and then you know of course we go into the actual war film, but that's how it begins. This film begins very differently. It starts out with this this opening where we hear Franz saying voiceover, I thought that we could build our nest high in the trees. We lived above the clouds. And then the first image we see is the opening of the of Triumph of the Will, which of course is this shot that descends from the clouds down into a Nazi rally. And that's sort of Malik signaling to the audience that this isn't going to be a story of, you know, how everything is is wonderful and then, you know, evil sort of creeps in. It begins with the evil there and it progresses from that point onwards. And I think that's a really interesting way for him to signal how this isn't just going to be sort of the same old Malik that we've become accustomed to. He's going to be maybe exploring some new uh, territory with this. And I really appreciated that about this film. And I just generally really appreciate that A Hidden Life is really about integrity. And it's also just got this very clear moral vision to it that while I wouldn't say it's absent in any of his other films, that's definitely not true. It's foregrounded in this film in a really special way and for Malik at least a very unique way. Yeah, and the themes too specifically uh, contend with Christianity and Christian convictions as well as the institution of the church. There's a fantastic shot in the movie where we get Franz and he's out in this field and he's, he's kind of just standing there looking onward and behind him sits the church for this city village and there's, there's this mist in the background and the mist is, is hovering in front of the church. You can see it there, but it's obscure and... When Franz visits the bishop, when he visits his priest, they are telling him, hey, just go along with it. Hey, it's it's really not it's really not a big deal. And so you have Malik here, and he's he's really kind of working with, okay, what what is the purpose of the church? And has that institution ever been led astray? 
And what does that mean for the life of the believer? Because literally you have someone here who's supposed to be a part of this community of Christ, but this community has turned in the opposite direction. And so where does he go? And and that also feeds into the isolation that we feel with these characters and why his relationship with his wife means so much because she is this Christian beacon who at least attempts to understand him and at least attempts to guide him and strengthen him as he makes this very uh, this very difficult uh, decision. I, I think now is probably a good time to really jump with both feet into this film's spiritual themes, because I don't think there's really any way to discuss it without really exploring the different angles from which Malik explores the problem of evil in a God-created world. And, and he does it from, from a few angles, and he doesn't do it from a position of judgment, I guess. There's often this tendency when somebody's making a historical period piece to sort of look at the people of that time with 2020 hindsight, right? Like to to look down on them for not seeing how terrible the Nazis were or for being so naive as to think that they could remain above it all when when the Nazis came to power, that sort of thing. Here, Malik, he, he takes lots of different routes to explore just how slowly over time various attitudes can curdle into evil and various attitudes that don't fully curdle into evil maybe just kind of settle into complacency. I was really intrigued by an early scene where we see Franz uh, helping out an artisan who's restoring an old church and the artisan is you know restoring these these frescoes he's putting some some gold leaf on some of the uh the images to you know make them shine again and the entire time Malik isn't presenting this as sort of the the artist who's very who's detached i guess from the way the world is and whose art is sort of what elevates people to god that's something that is very tempting to read a lot into Malik films is to see him as sort of this guy who's kind of got his head in the clouds and doesn't really seem interested in the way um, people live spirituality in in the day-to-day. It's all very ethereal. I wouldn't agree with that criticism at all, and I think this sequence does so much to show why, because even in the midst of the usual Malik signatures, we get you know light playing on the walls or light playing on the floor as a very clear visual signal that God is present in this place, the entire time the artist is bemoaning the fact that his attempts to portray holy things using his art is just a failure. He says, you know, I'm, he, he says, I'm an old man. Someday I'll paint a true Christ, but that is not today. And he goes on to talk about how this artwork that he's restoring presents a Christ who's very, who's very comfortable who reassures people and allows them to look up from their pews and dream, which sounds beautiful, but in a way is also a lie because that doesn't that doesn't take into account the cross. And Malik, for the rest of the film, shows us exactly what taking up your cross might demand of a person. And I think that's just marvelous. Yeah, there's this line that I wrote down in the film, and the priest is talking to Franz, 
And he says, he, God, wants us to have peace, happiness, not to bring suffering upon ourselves. And I, I think that that line works really well for right now. So, you know, I could I could comfort someone who's trying to make a difficult decision and say, you know, God wants us to be happy, right? God wants us to have peace. And I, I think it it would probably play pretty good, even though that line doesn't always work. It, it really just depends on what we mean by those types of things. And it, it very much describes this comfortable life. And the effect of that line in this film is pretty powerful because we have the ability of hindsight. We know what's at stake here. And so when we hear that, we're saying, no, no, you're not, you're missing the point. Like God wants us to, God wants us to stand up for what is, for what is right. God wants us to, to sacrifice. And so he's very much contending with kind of what you alluded to, Kevin, this comfortable Christianity that says, hey, take up your cross, but, but sees that as just kind of an easy lifestyle. And by knowing the full story, that really had an effect on me as I, as I heard that line. And then when we, we do see that play out and we do see the, uh, this character make a difficult decision and we, we get the problem of evil. Well, why isn't it God intervening? There's this scene where, uh, the soldiers are beating Franz up in, in jail, in prison. And the shot is the God's eye view shot, uh, directly above that scene. And we ask ourselves the question, well, well, where is God in this scene? And I think that shot works well because in one sense you can look at it and say, yeah, you know, why, why isn't God doing something about this? And in another sense, you could look at it and say, all these characters are telling him that no one sees his story. No one will know his story. But even in the midst of all this difficulty, there is a God who's looking down on his life and who does see exactly what's happening at all times. So Malik is really kind of contending with these deep questions, and he's doing it in a a way that can bring comfort, but also uh, can push us to assess our doubts and to ask those, those same questions. And I think that's pretty effective here. God is present in this film in a whole host of of really remarkable ways my you you mentioned that uh that light bulb uh in that beating scene i'm thinking of the um the mountain peak that's uh, that we often see in the background of these exterior shots of saint radigund the uh the village where franz and fanny live they uh, often are shot on this grassy hillside. You know, they're they're reaping hay, or they're tying hay in bundles, or they're, you know, plowing a field. And the entire time, there's this beautiful, gigantic mountain peak uh, off in the distance, in the background, and it's ever present. It never changes, and it's always just looming over everything else, watching over them. It's like this this face of of god in a way the way that malik shoots it and the way that it keeps recurring over and over over the course of the film it's clearly this silent presence meant to evoke the divine and the way that 
that mountain or stand-ins for that mountain, you know, light coming in through windows or tiny little light bulbs in a jail cell or, you know, a, a beam of light getting in through a doorway. All of these are, are meant to suggest that maybe even if nobody ever found out what Franz Jägerstadter's story was, there is somebody who was who who is watching and who knows and who who sees the the integrity that he that he holds on to even at great cost to himself and i think maybe that's kind of where i find malik slipping into the mode that i really like in his films after so much time spent in the modern day of concrete and neon lights of his previous two films, where I didn't feel like he managed to find that same kind of transcendence, we're back in it. And he's he and he finds it, he seems most comfortable finding it in nature. And I I don't know if that's perhaps necessarily a fair way to describe the way he sees these films, but as a viewer, that's that's the way that I I receive them, and I just I find there to be so much more awe and richness in in these shots and in that mountain face than in in any number of films set in the modern day, not just Malick's modern day films. Yeah, and there's there's something that those shots kind of do emotionally. To I almost feel like. Um... To slow down the heart, I, 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 it reminds me of Twenty Four Frames from Kiristami. Um, just the, the idea of kind of just to to relax, to put us back in that world. Now, obviously, it doesn't stay there. Uh, this film does go to some very emotional places, but um, there is something to the setting. I really love. There's a line where his wife prays, "You love him more than I do," and. It is really powerful because, you know, we're talking about the problem of evil and, and why God doesn't always intervene. And, and she has this just great moment of surrender. You love him more than I do. I mean, it's, it's powerful. I will say this too, Kevin. There's, Malik doesn't stand, and you, and you even talked about this. So I'm going to reiterate it. Malik doesn't stand on this high horse and say, oh, he did something great. Everybody else here is terrible. Because as we're watching the film, you know, I'm watching this with Priscilla and she's, she's saying, wow, that's so hard. Like it's so hard, the decision he's making with his family right there. And we learn that it's possible probably for him to maybe go work at a hospital and not go to war, but he's still having to pledge this oath to the Nazi party. And I can understand why someone would do that and say, you know, I don't really mean it. And I'm going to just go work on, I'm going to go work in the hospital and do something else. Um, and so there is this kind of mercy and this grace within that situation while at the same time acknowledging the great sacrifice that this character has made, this person has made, and uh, what that reaction should do in our lives uh, today. The way that Malik treats even the Nazis in this film, I think is something special, and it walks a tightrope that I think so many, so many other filmmakers have not really succeeded in walking. We, we reviewed Jojo Rabbit on a previous episode of this show, and... Uh, you, you liked it a little bit more than I do, but one thing I think that we did kind of see eye to eye on was that there are parts of 
that film where Taika Waititi's attempt to see the humanity, even in Nazis, there, there's something that feels off about some of his attempts to do that in that film. And it's hard to put your finger on why exactly, because it is true that the Nazis weren't monsters. They were people, and they had many of the uh, same sorts of human concerns that any one of us has. There, there wasn't something essentially different about the Nazis that makes us superior to them. It's just they maybe gave into the darker side of uh, their natures a little bit more than perhaps we have done, but that doesn't make them essentially worse than us. Um, and Waititi's film maybe didn't find the way to explore that without seeming as if he was excusing them for their actions. This film, I think manages that and it's really difficult to say why because this is such this is a film that doesn't really devote a lot of time to talking about the politics of nazism or fascism or uh the holocaust even the holocaust isn't even really mentioned here and yet there's something essentially human about the way that malik portrays even the Nazi characters. In fact, there's a, a really interesting interaction between Franz and one of the officials who's responsible for keeping him in prison. And over the course of this conversation, the official goes from somebody who's sort of saying like, stop resisting. We're going to win. Nobody will ever know you were here. It's, it's simply pointless for you to think that you're better than us. But as the conversation goes on, the ground shifts and it becomes almost as if this Nazi official is asking Franz, looking to Franz as sort of this moral authority and asking him, is there any way that I can get out from under this, this same, this yoke of the Nazi party that I've chosen to put on? And that's such a compassionate note for Malik to find in a film that's about the Nazis oppressing and murdering people that... It's just a really great way to both acknowledge the monstrousness of the regime while also not neglecting the fact that the people who made up that regime weren't inhuman. They acted in inhuman ways, but they themselves were very human, and there was something in them that could still respond to goodness when they saw it, even if they chose ultimately to turn away from it. And I think that's, again, a mark of the the moral vision of this film that I really appreciated. And and part of that is just the direction Malik gives to the performers. We have some really good side performers here that I think um, really just supercharged the movie at certain parts when it needs it. And, and some of these Nazi characters are, they're just played by just really great character actors. And we get these scenes where they're trying to convince Franz and then they just kind of they offer this look and it's what what you've talked about Kevin this look where it's like man like you're free you you are free i'm not free and it's all kind of in the look the the sigh their physical demeanor and i think that really just it it paints it paints a picture just a powerful picture of this world that he's creating while at the same time 
Well, at the same time, we get the this archival footage that shows Hitler and all these crowds kind of fawning all over this individual person and just giving their entire selves to him. And one lone person standing out among that who's like, I am not, I'm not going to even recite an oath in front of a dozen people because I can't do it. And there's just kind of this great handling of that situation in this movie. Yeah, and he and Franz doesn't stand apart as a mark of pride either. And that's kind of the other thing that Malik manages to thread here is Franz doesn't do it because he sits in judgment over his oppressors. Although he would be perhaps justified in doing so, he just says, there's something in me that feels that I cannot, that it would be wrong to do this. I can't betray my conscience is essentially what he's saying. And it's no more or less than that. He doesn't see himself as a hero. He doesn't see the the Nazis who are beating him necessarily as monsters. He just simply states that this is, I see this as wrong and I refuse to compromise my conscience simply because it would be expedient to do so. And the persistence with with which he sticks to that gives him a strength that uh, Malik catches in some shots where a Nazi is squaring off against him, and Franz just stands there. And eventually, the the Nazi kind of like turns away and tucks tail and 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 goes the other direction, not because he's being menaced anyway, but just because there's something about that moral fortitude that he simply cannot oppose. And I think that that's. That's something that hasn't really is rarely seen in in a in another film, and I think Malik is just the sort of filmmaker who finds those moments and is able to present them to us in ways that feel earned and real. That's well said, listeners. This is our review of A Hidden Life by director Terrence Malick. It's currently playing in limited theaters across the country. If you have a chance to see the movie, we would love for you to let us know your thoughts. Make sure to tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod, or email us seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. I'd love to hear people who are not necessarily Malick fans. I would like to hear their thoughts. What did they think of this movie? Uh, so if you're not necessarily a Malick fan, let us know what you think of A Hidden Life. If you are a big Malick fan, I would love to hear your thoughts. I I can't imagine individuals who are big Malick fans who don't like this movie. I don't know. That That's just a gut feeling. Would you Would you agree, Kevin? You, you know, I I would have a hard time imagining that too. I will say though that there was one ingredient from this film that I found myself missing a lot, and that's Emmanuel Lubeski. He wasn't the cinematographer on this film, and I don't know. I, I if I had one if I have one quibble with this film, it's that I don't know that the camera work really rises to Lubeski's level, which isn't so much a a diss on on Jorg Widmer the. The, the cinematographer for Hidden Life, so much as it's just a testament to there's only one Emmanuel Lubezki, mm. and it's hard to replace him. Big shoes to fill. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I get that. I um, I, I like the cinematography, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I totally understand that. Listeners, don't go anywhere. We'll be back in just a moment with our review of Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story.
Listeners, we want to take an opportunity and once again thank all of you who have supported us through our Patreon campaign. It's very easy, a lot of different ways that you can do that. Just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. We have a number of different perks. One of those, Kevin, the one we like a lot is the what can you buy for $5 perk. Help us to support the show when you hop on there. We get you a lot of great stuff. And Kevin, I was just wondering, we had a nice long discussion about Terrence Malick and uh, got me thinking about some deep philosophical things. And here's this. <laughs> what can you buy for five bucks? <laughs> uh, I like the way that you led into that. Uh, $5 would get you a special Jack Nicholson ringtone. So whenever somebody calls you up, you can hear his uh, inimitable words from The Shining. Here's Johnny. Mm. Okay. Uh, I was thinking something from as good as it gets, but The Shining will work. Another one of his, I, his claimed know, films. <laughs> it, it, it it probably depends on what kind of friends you have. Mm-hmm. If depending on your friends, The Shining might be more appropriate. We'll we'll yeah. just say that. Okay. Or it could just be you can't handle the truth. That would be a good one. Is he? Does he say that? Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. uh, you know a few good men. Yeah. Okay. Well. We'll go with one of those five bucks. You can get the bonus pack for ten, where you get multiple Jack Nicholson ringtones. Um, just one would be <laughs> just be five. Listeners, go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. Support the podcast; it means a lot to us. And if you want to support Christ and pop culture in general, and not just us, but a whole range of other great things that the site puts out there, that's also a really great thing to do. There is, of course, our sister podcast, Persuasion, who's a part of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. You also help support uh, the many writers who bring you great articles for the site. And since this is the episode, Wade, where we are reviewing A Hidden Life, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the article, the written review of A Hidden Life that went up on the site this week. It's written by Elizabeth Pease. It's titled A Hidden Life, Terrence Malick Helps Us See the Invisible. It's a really interesting essay, and if you just can't get enough Malik discourse in your life, that would be a great thing to check out. Yes, listeners, make sure you hop on over to ChristInPopCulture.com and you can support us by clicking the For Members Only button or subscribe now at the top right-hand corner. And you can check out Elizabeth's article. It's on the front page right now. I know that she'll appreciate it and it's Malik. So I'm sure that it's going to be beneficial for anyone who watches the movie. I... I love reading reviews of Malik's movie because there's just so much there. It's so dense, Kevin, and I mean that in a good way. Uh, it's it's great to talk about them and to discuss them. So glad we have that up on the site. Listeners, also, make sure to rate and review the podcast. You can do that on iTunes. It really helps us out. It's a, it's really great because it gets the word out and all those reviews, the stars, everything. It's just it's good stuff. Just go to iTunes, search Seeing and Believing, click our icon, leave us a review, and leave us some stars. We would very much appreciate it. I've been what I love about Nicole. Loving you. She's a great dancer. Infectious. She is a mother who plays, really plays. She gives great presents. You are 
competitive. What? Are you kidding me? You won't be free. She knows when to push me. Oh, and when to leave me alone. we should talk okay you know kevin as 2019 slowly winds down we have at least a few reviews left in us hopefully and one of those reviews is a look at noam Baumbach's netflix drama marriage story starring adam driver and scarlett johansson marriage story follows charlie and nicole as they manage a rocky coast-to-coast divorce Simultaneously heartbreaking and grueling, Bombach's drama examines the multitude of layers that both draws the couple together and simultaneously rips them apart. Given one benefit of Marriage Story receiving a Netflix release is that many people have had a chance to see the film this last week and to add to the general discussion, which has been really great, and we saw this also with The Irishman. Now, With a marriage story, one much debated point is that of POV. In other words, whose side should we be on? Charlie is played by Driver or Nicole's played by Johansson. Now, I've got opinion on the matter and uh, I'll share that opinion, but I did want to ask you first, (laughs) in a marriage story, should we be advocating for just one of these characters? Yeah, well, I guess I, I should say right off the bat that you should let me give my opinion a lot more, Wade, or else this <laughs> this partnership is going to get a little bit more rocky. No, I'm just choose a side. I'm I, I'm just kidding. No, I, I don't know if our listeners want to hear mom and dad fighting on the podcast, but um, I, I think it's interesting that you mentioned both sides and POV point of view in your um in your intro, because I think that those two things and this whole discussion of marriage story are kind of getting conflated a little bit. I think it's it's unquestionable that this film has a very strong point of view. Um, it does attempt to understand Nicole, but Bombach, uh, drawing as he is uh, a little bit from his own personal experience of divorce, seems much more aligned with the point of view of Adam Driver's Charlie. We do get the sense that Bombach inhabits Charlie's perspective in this film a lot more fully. And because of that, we do kind of get a little bit of a weighting of the scales where it seems like Charlie is a little bit more sympathetic, at least, than Nicole is, at least on a first view. So that's kind of... One way to answer the question, I don't think, though, that the film really intends you to take sides. It wants you to really just sort of enter in this experience of divorce and not necessarily side with one or the other, like, you know, this this person's the bad guy, this person's the good guy, and I'm just going to sort of set them up in opposition to each other, because the whole point of this film is that the lawyers and the friends and family who want Nicole and Charlie, to do that very thing are the problem here. The The marriage that ends in marriage story is 
one that isn't perfect, but the fact that it is ending is a tragedy and it's difficult for both of them. And so it almost seems like Bombach is saying, it's beside the point who's right and who's wrong. The important thing is that you never lose sight of the humanity of the person that you're divorcing from. And I think that that's something that this film does really well. And I don't know, I like it quite a bit. I think it does a good job of it. I'm curious to get your take, though. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I appreciate kind of how you're framing this. At the beginning of the movie, there is the sequence where both characters, one at a time, are reading out what they think are good qualities of the opposite person. And we're seeing kind of all of that play on screen. It's a well-made, fun, and informational sequence. It really is kind of a joy to watch one character talk about their spouse and to just say, hey, here's what I love about them. Here's what makes them such a fantastic person. And I think that sequence works in one of two ways. First is these people seem like like they're pretty good. Why can't they they stick together? You, you look at these sequences and you say, yeah, I think these characters are actually really good for each other. And so there's that that's sort of driving this whole story as we see this breaking apart of a marriage and we say, you know, this is happening to two pretty decent individuals and it's not as if one person is this this abuser or, or there's one person to blame, uh, but they both, uh, they both are, are pretty decent individuals. And then at the same time, what it also says is it gives us a frame of reference and it lets us know, hey, these are pretty decent people and what we're going to see here isn't like what I mentioned. It's not going to be one terrible person trying to get out uh, or trying to... Um, hurt the other person intentionally and what you would expect to find in, in, in maybe a, another type of movie. Uh, but you have these people who, um, who both are imperfect, but um, they're trying to work through that together. So yeah, I don't think we're supposed to take a side. I think the movie kind of, the POV of the film seems to go with Johansson's character for the kind of the beginning. And then it switches to driver and Bombach probably relates to that character more so that's why we we get that perspective at the same time i don't think johansson's perspective is lost now while i'm watching this movie there are parts of the relationship where i say okay i think that person made a bad choice i think that person is wrong in this situation but then this person is wrong in that situation and they're both wrong here so it it really has some nuance to the overall overall scope of this uh of this film you know, it, it makes me think of another word to describe this film, which is unbalanced, which in some context would seem a little bit like a, a criticism of it, but I, I don't think, I don't really mean it in that way. What I mean by unbalanced is that the film is is a little bit like a seesaw. Like it's it's not like a seesaw in the sense that it's perfectly level at all times and there's equal weight on both sides of the seesaw. It's more like a seesaw in that we first see one end go down and the other end go up, and then the the opposite happens. That same end goes down while the other one goes up. And that's kind of what the rhythm is that Bombach establishes with this film, where we start off kind of feeling like 
Charlie is being victimized needlessly. They they had agreed that they're going to have an amicable divorce, no lawyers. Nicole goes out and gets a lawyer, and things start to go downhill. So we're on Charlie's side. But then as the film goes on, we, we get to understand maybe what spurred the separation in the first place. We find out that Charlie had an affair. We find out that he's maybe a little bit more selfish in terms of the way he sees his career in in opposition to hers. And so there's that constant seesawing going on throughout the film. And I think that that is partly by design. Bombach wants us to see that this isn't sort of a situation where everything is fair and we just have to learn to see, you know, to walk a mile in the other person's shoes and then we'll achieve perfect understanding and you know we'll we'll achieve a leveling of the scales and the movie will be good he's more trying to illustrate how relationships are always kind of about that give and take and when divorce enters the picture it warps that give and take in a way that becomes um emotionally violent to to both people in the relationship and the the ebb and flow of our sympathies is necessary for him to show that where we really feel strongly for Charlie and then we begin to pull away from him a little bit when we kind of get a fuller picture of what's going on and vice versa with Nicole. And I think that that's a really canny move on his part, even though uh, I'm not sure that I would put it up against, say, something like Before Midnight, where we see another marital conflict that allows us to truly inhabit both characters in a fuller sense. But that's more of a testament to how great Before Midnight is and not so much a a way to rag on marriage story at all. Yeah. Yeah, and I think with this movie as well, what you get is you you get these these individuals who are uh, who are married. And what I kept thinking about is when the Bible speaks of marriage, it speaks of, hey, the, these two are becoming one flesh. And this is a movie that says, hey, let's look at one flesh being ripped apart and these people becoming, in a sense, separate entities. And I, I, I guess I appreciate this movie. I, I don't I don't really like divorce movies usually i don't usually like movies where it's like this is a movie that's about the disintegration of a relationship and that's kind of it but i I think what bombach does here is he doesn't come in with this flippant view of divorce it's not well sometimes people just grow apart and that's life and it's okay and you just kind of move on and and things are fine what he says is this is a marriage that is falling apart and it's really difficult. And one of the ways that he shows this is the legality of that difficulty. These characters who are deciding where their son is going to live, characters are deciding what they're going to do with their money, and it all feels pretty straightforward, but it's not. So you have the physical aspects of the divorce, but then also these emotional aspects of the divorce. And it's just really hard. And so for someone who has a who has a very high view of of marriage um and a particularly maybe a more conservative view of marriage a Christian conservative view of marriage 
this is one of those films that highlights the reality. It doesn't necessarily say, that, hey, all divorce is wrong or whatever, but it does say, hey, divorce is really difficult. It's not just this happy-go-lucky, conscious uncoupling here. And I think that's where the film kind of works for me. And then on top of that, just in the form of the movie, this is a movie that is very hard to watch at times, but almost every difficult scene has some sort of humor in it. It's a very funny movie. And so there's this one scene in particular where there are just like, they're working with their lawyers and it's just this, it's not, it's not a fun time. And you're getting frustrated at these characters and the situation. And then they just kind of stop for lunch. And it's really kind of funny <laughs> the way that all that works. And with every single scene, whether it's the big fight and you're going to hear about the big fight, there's this big fight, whether, whatever it is, there are these funny moments in between, which I found to be a kind of a reflection of life in that in the midst of kind of the seriousness, there are funny moments that happen. Uh, but it also just kind of helps digest this movie because it could be a really difficult one to watch. And instead, I think it, I think it hums along pretty well. Yeah, the the humor in this movie is is really necessary to to make some of the the bitterness uh go down more easily because that big fight that you mentioned it's sort of this movie's analog to the big fight from before midnight is just absolutely gutting. There's there's a line reading from Driver sort of the of the at the culmination of the of the confrontation that is just so full of venom and rage and hurt that it it almost made me gasp at just how raw it was. And I think Bombach's ability to both portray that in a truthful way with without going too far, without making these characters seem like monsters for tearing into each other like this, and even to find a, a sort of rueful comedy in their separation, I think is a testament to how masterfully he's able to sort of orchestrate these little moments and use his his camera and direct his actors to perform in such a way that those those notes don't get lost, that we notice them and that we incorporate them into the imaginative picture that we're building of these people's history together and and their future going their separate ways and i think that's that's really special um i think also he has some really canny ways to drive home maybe not how good they are for each other because he does investigate throughout the film how charlie and nicole there was always some pro- some cracks in the relationship, just as there's probably cracks in in most relationships that, at least in Charlie and Nicole's case, they allowed to grow and become a problem. And Bombach's ability to be clear-eyed about that, but while also showing that they did have a good thing going for a really long time, uh, is is really good. And he finds that even in the midst of the divorce, not just. Uh, at the beginning where we're hearing their notes about what they like about each other. There's a scene where um, Charlie comes to uh, pick up their son uh, to have his, you know, court appointed time with them. And they have to close the gate to the home where Nicole is living and the power's out. So they have to do it manually. So 
Charlie and his son are on one side, Nicole is alone on the other, and they're both working together to close this date, this gate and erect this barrier between them. And that's just such an elegant visual metaphor for basically what goes on throughout the entirety of the film that it's, I don't know, it's just a testament to the fact that this isn't just Bombach writing his own feelings about divorce onto the page and just giving them to actors to say he's actually really working at a a really high level both with performance and image yeah and i think the image too uh, this is shot on 35 millimeter it has this classic sort of look to it uh and reminds me of of some of the the great French filmmakers, if, if that makes sense. There's just this almost a timeless value to the production design and the photography. And even the way these characters are, are blocked, there's this one shot on the subway that has been used, I think, in a number of different posters, and I think it's great. Uh, and then, too, the way that Driver's body is used in conjunction with Scarlett Johansson's and just kind of his height and the way that that's shot and how that works its way into the confrontation that they ultimately have. You know, so Kevin, you were you were mentioning the idea of cracks kind of being there. And and Bombach it's I could describe it, but it's it's hard to figure out how he does it just like he does it. But these characters they're going through the divorce and we get the sense that as they're looking back they're looking back with a hindsight that's damaged. And so they're talking about some of the cracks. They're talking about some of the difficulties. And even in their fights, they're saying the worst of the worst of the worst. But we also get the sense that they don't always mean that and that they are interpreting the beginning by way of the end and how a relationship can end And it can influence the way that we view everything that came before it, even the good that came before it. And there's really kind of these small details where we as an audience get this step back and we can almost see this relationship a little bit clearer than these characters can. And as a result of that, I, I don't know about you, but for me, I kept just holding on to the hope that what if these characters didn't go through with this and realizing that they could make a relationship work based on their personalities and some of the things that drew them apart could actually pull them together and that that makes this film even even more saddening than it is because we we see kind of this possible path forward uh and and at the same time it it seems to make this more, I don't know, grounded, kind of earthy because these characters are humans. And when they fight, at least for me, it felt like they were kind of fighting like humans in that particular situation. And and that that really takes this film a long way. Yeah. And it gives the film this bittersweet quality too. The way that it ends is on a gesture that's that's very simple and isn't isn't going to to magically fix everything. I guess we can just say that. Um, but there's both a 
a wistfulness to to that gesture and also a sense that, that there's also a finality to it that you know it's not necessarily a full resolution of all the issues that have transpired between these two people but it's also it's not just all darkness and bitterness right like i feel like Noah Baumbach's films tend when when they're at their worst, they tend to not allow any of that sweetness in with the bitter. I think of something like Margot at the wedding, which is just unpleasant people being unpleasant to each other, and it's just kind of unpleasant, which might be truthful in a certain sense, but doesn't feel like a full portrait of humanity's possibilities. And I think Marriage Story has a fuller portrait of those possibilities. And it's in small gestures like the one at the end of this film or the one I talked about with the closing of the gate that ends with a shot of the back of Johansson's head so we don't get to see what her expression is. I think those little touches really humanize this these characters and elevate the story beyond uh, something that could be a lot smaller and meaner that in the hands of a, a less gifted director. Yeah. I think that's what makes it good. And there's this kind of quality too, little fun details about the world of show business and theater and film that is not a surprise coming from somebody who's sharing a at least partially autobiographical film or a film maybe inspired by his divorce and he's working in this industry and so you get a lot there you get some nice touches uh i thought it was funny how adam driver's character dresses up as frankenstein's monster for halloween and it just kind of it helps us to kind of realize hey this this is kind of like a horror story this is this is something I got done watching. And I, said, I I wouldn't wish this on on my worst enemy. This is this is not a fun situation. And when Laura Dern, at the end, she plays Scarlett Johansson's lawyer, Nicole's lawyer. She, at the end, she says, "You won," and it's a great line. And Laura Dern is just deliciously maniacal in this movie. She's really great, but she says, "You you won," and that's the opposite of what not only. Nicole is thinking, but we are thinking as as an audience. Um, the performances here are wonderful. I think this is Adam Driver is one of his best. Um, Scarlett Johansson, one of her best. Uh, I mentioned Laura Dern. She does uh, really well here. And then uh, there's also Alan Alda, who plays a, an older lawyer who's been divorced a number of times. He is great i mean he is off the charts fantastic and then uh ray Liotta is really good here as this kind of tough as nails cutthroat very funny lawyer just all the performances are wonderful yeah the uh alda in particular has a does a really great job with an understated performance that is sort of like it's it's sneaky it's snuck up on me at least where he he seems sort of like, oh, you know, this is going, going to kind of be an incompetent lawyer who is going to be contrasted to Laura Dern's hyper-competent, very on top of it uh, lawyer for Nicole. And instead, what we get is something that's a lot more complex, a lot more mournful. Uh, I don't know. Alda plays a lot of different notes in this performance, and it's something really, really special. I think he should probably get some awards attention for this, at least. Oh man, he's great. He he's just really fantastic. And then he has that 
that really important line where he says, uh, it, it, it's like death without a body that going through this divorce with your, with your child, it's like death without a body because you, this one body, this marriage, you're ripping it apart. It, it's just, it means kind of so much. And, and I think it's a, I think it's a powerful line. Listeners, that's our review of Marriage Story. It's currently streaming in Netflix and also playing uh, in some theaters across the country. So if you check it out, once again, let us know at cbeliefpod, P-O-D. Let us know what your thoughts are. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Kevin, we've reached the end of the show, a part of the show where we recommend something from the world of television and or film to our listeners. What would you like to recommend today? Well, like I said at the beginning of this episode, we only have one more episode until we are done for 2019. And of course, Wade, that means that there are a lot of movies that are coming out here in this last month that we're just not going to get a chance to review on the show because we just don't have the space or the bandwidth to get to them. So I'm going to plug a a film that I was fortunate enough to see last week that I would love to talk about on the show, but realistically, we're not going to be able to get to it. That would be Alma Harrell's Honey Boy, uh, the Shia LaBeouf written film that's very autobiographical. It's the story of a child actor, uh, essentially Shia LaBeouf's stand-in, and his fraught relationship with his father, who is also his manager. I was caught off guard by how much I liked this film. LaBeouf is an interesting... He's an interesting actor to me. I wouldn't say that I, I love him as an actor, but he he's never boring to me. And he's there's a lot of talent there. And I think Honey Boy does a really great job of sort of allowing him to work out these complicated feelings he has towards his father, but doing it in a way that doesn't feel like we're essentially watching him indulge in a therapy session on screen. And I think a lot of that has to do with Alma Harrell's directing, which is just so, it's so on point. And it also finds little ways to enhance the material so that it feels not just like a straightforward retelling of a very um, complex and unhealthy relationship and becomes something that feels healing, maybe not just for LaBeouf himself, but also maybe lets the audience in on, on that experience a little bit and lets us maybe experience a sort of reconciliation ourselves, even if we were never child actors who had uh, a horrible stage manager parent. I think it's it's really special. I hope that it finds an audience. Um, hopefully, maybe we can talk about it on the show sometime. If we don't, though, let this be my review of it on the show. Uh, Honey Boy, it should be coming out in the next couple of weeks so people can see it, and I would recommend that they do so. Yeah, I want to. I want to see it. It it actually opened here, but I think it. I think it left the theater that that's next to my house. I I, I don't. Oh, really? I don't. I don't know if oh. it's actually playing. I need to. I want to check it out before the end of the year. I watched Shia LaBeouf and Even Stevens on the Disney Channel uh, when it first released, okay. and so I old, old school LaBeouf thing. Yeah, yeah, and just kind of followed him from there. Uh, so I. I'm very, actually very interested in the movie. I've heard some good stuff, and it's nice to know that you like it too. Uh, so I was thinking of something to recommend, and I'll recommend this. I think 
I think most of the people who are interested in watching this have probably already seen it, but maybe it's a good way for me to kind of talk about it. Greta Gerwig is releasing Little Women here in the next couple of weeks. About a month ago, a month and a half ago, I decided that I needed to watch the 1994 adaptation of Little Women directed by uh, Gillian Armstrong. And I had not seen it before, but so many people talk about that. And I watched it and I thought it was pretty good. The cast is, is I think, I think just great. Uh, Winona Ryder, of course, is in it. Kirsten Dunst, Susan Sarandon, and Christian Bale. They're all, you know, much long, younger in that film. Uh, but they really, they really do bring to life this material. And uh, yeah, I think it's a classic for people who really do like it. It's one of those movies that people just seem to have a lot of a. Uh, a lot of esteem for, but I'll recommend it this week in case you're getting ready for Greta Gerwig's version, which I'm looking forward to that too, but it might be nice to kind of compare both of those movies. I, um, I'm i sure there's room for, for two really good Little Women movies, Kevin. I'm sure that there's room for both of them. Yeah, you know, I have memories of seeing the the Armstrong version of the film, you know, way back when I was in high school, I think. Um, but I don't have very clear memories of what I thought of it. So maybe this would be a good time for me to go back and refresh my memory before digging into the Gerwig version. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's hitting theaters here soon. And who knows, we might have a chance to talk about Listeners, we mentioned earlier the plan is to review Star Wars Rise of Skywalker, so we should have a review ready for the day of release. So that next Friday when it comes out, we should have a review for you. I know you'll want to go see it and then immediately hear our thoughts. I am very excited, Kevin. I'm very excited. There's there's possibly some room on my top 10 of the year. We'll see. You never know. But we're coming to a close. The window is closing, and Skywalker is just kind of slipping at the last minute, and we'll see where it, where it lands. It's, it's going to zoom through that closing window like the Millennium Falcon through the teeth of the space worm in the asteroid in Empire Strikes Back. Yes. No, it, too, too labored of an analogy? No, no. I, I think it might even need to be more labored, um, because, but I thought it was great. <laughs> Great. Okay. Glad glad to hear it. Listeners, thank you for checking out this week's episode. It's brought to you, as always, by our Patreon supporters and ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.